You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus, tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Heads up, this episode contains sensitive material relating to abuse, torture, murder, cannibalism, and, you know, a bunch of stuff that might be good for Halloween, but might not be good for you, or your youngins in particular. So take that under advisement. Petra Garcia Blanco wanted more out of life. She was born and raised in a small village in the Galicia region of Spain, just north of Portugal, called Rebordachau. Not only was Rebordachau small and isolated, surrounded by thick primeval forest and treacherous mountains, but in 1846, when Petra was 15 years old, it was also suffering through a period of sustained and severe famine. There were no opportunities for a teenage girl in Rebordachau. Hell, there was barely any food. So Petra's mother, Manuela Garcia Blanco, wasn't surprised when she returned to Rebordachau from a short trip to find her daughter had left. In fact, she was thrilled. It seemed like the latest and brightest thread in a recent string of good luck. A couple years earlier, she had met a man named Manuel Romasanta, a good man, gentle, polite, caring, pious. It didn't matter to Manuel that Manuela had a teenage daughter or an estranged husband. He loved her anyway. Manuel was a rare find in Rebordachau. Yes, he was small and a little funny looking, and the men of the town mocked him as effeminate. But the women of Rebordachau found his slightness and softness comforting. In a world of rough, bullying, hot-tempered farmers, Roma Santa was a balm. He could weave and sew and embroider with them. Rarest of all, he could read and write, skills he put into play authoring love letters to Manuela. Manuela and Petra joined Roma Santa for a time at his business. He was a vendor, a traveling merchant who sold miscellaneous stuff around the area. Fabric, clothing, ointments, and especially soap. The Blancos joined him in this endeavor, and this itself was a blessed relief. Work, and therefore money, and therefore food. In 1846, Manuela had returned from traveling, presumably selling some of Manuel's goods to discover Petra missing. It was fantastic news, Roma Santa told her. While she was away, he had gotten word from a well-to-do priest in the coastal city of Santander. The priest needed someone to come work for him as a servant, and Petra fit the bill. It was good money, and a way out of the Galician backwoods, so Manuel had accompanied her to the priest and helped her get set up. 
Manuela must have been elated. Even more so when Roma Santa began delivering letters from her daughter detailing her grand new life. Santander was beautiful, the accommodations comfortable, the priest kind. He'd even begun educating her, teaching her to read and write. She was on her way to a diploma, an incredible thing for anyone of the time, let alone a poor and fatherless young woman from Chao. It was almost too good to be true. A few months later, Roma Santa offered to take Manuela to Santander to visit Petra, and the two took off together. When Roma Santa returned to Chao sometime later, Manuela Garcia wasn't with him. He explained to her sisters, Benita and Josefa, that the priest had offered Manuela employment in Santander too, an offer too good to refuse, and so she had decided to stay. Of course, Benita and Josefa missed their sister and their niece, but Petra continued to write letters to them, which Romusanta delivered, and they were happy that they had found such an amazing opportunity. Would that the sisters should be so lucky too. Well, did Romusanta have good news for them? Santander was practically the land of milk and honey, and there was plenty enough work there to go around. He'd be happy to take them too, except, well, there was one problem. The trip was long and arduous and expensive. Manuel had eaten the costs for his girlfriend and her daughter, but he couldn't afford to keep that up for Benita and Josefa. Benita was first to take the plunge. In 1847, she sold off all of her belongings to pay the fee for her and her 10-year-old son, Francisco. Three years later, in November of 1850, Josefa followed suit, selling her cattle and crops to Manuel in exchange for passage for her son, Jose. The next year, she went to join him. Antonia Rua did likewise for her and her three-year-old daughter, Peregrina. In 1851, Antonia's other daughter, Maria Dolores, also made the trip. None of them were ever seen again. Manuel Blanco Romasanta might have avoided suspicion altogether. As far as anyone in Chao knew, all of the missing were living better lives elsewhere, and he frequently brought word of them back from his travels. But in 1852, some locals noticed the Blanco sisters' clothing being sold among Romasanta's other sundries. Romasanta claimed that they had given the garments to him for selling, which might have covered things, but there was something else suspicious in his wares. Where had he gotten the fat to make all that nice soap? That year, a formal complaint was levied, accusing Romasanta of murdering the travelers he was supposedly guiding. It was a circumstantial case. Aside from a couple of bones and a single female skull found in the wilderness, there was no evidence of wrongdoing. Nevertheless, as soon as the accusation was made, Roma Santa fled the area, which seemed like a good enough sign that the people of Chao were on to something. He was discovered in July, working as a farm laborer in Toledo under a counterfeit Portuguese passport with the name Antonio Gomez. A couple of itinerant workers from Chao recognized him, and he was quickly arrested. At first, he denied he was Manuel Blanco Romasanta, but by the time he was transported back to Alariz for trial, he'd given up the act and given a confession. A very full confession. 
not just to the murders of the nine women and children he had promised passage, but to four more, three shepherds and an old woman. Yet, he contended that he was not guilty. He had killed 13 people, yes, but at trial he argued it wasn't his fault, that he'd had no say in the slaughter. Because at the time of the slayings, Manuel Blanco Romasanta said he was a werewolf. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Werewolf. Manuel Blanco Romasanta was the first recorded serial killer in Spanish history, and surely the first Spanish serial killer to claim lycanthropy as a defense. But outside of 19th century Spain, werewolves were no strangers to courtrooms. Oh, and before we go any further here, I should clarify something. Romasanta did not claim lycanthropy as a defense, at least not at first. He claimed werewolfism. Today, the two terms are often used interchangeably, at least in common parlance, but historically, as well as technically, they are not the same thing. Lycanthropy, historically and technically, refers to a belief or delusion that a person is, has been, or can turn into a wolf. Lycanthropes are people who think they're werewolves. But somewhere in the 20th century, the ideas got mixed up. I blame Dungeons and Dragons, frankly, but don't ask me to defend that. And that's not all. I would wager that most of the things you think you know about werewolves are modern inventions. Like, what do you picture when you picture a werewolf? If it's something vaguely humanoid with fur and such, then you're doing it wrong. The werewolf as a sort of hybrid man-wolf creature is an idea that rarely, but not quite never, comes up in the literature until the 1900s. Specifically, you can date the popularity of that image to the 1935 film Werewolf of London, the first feature-length werewolf movie. When my experiments are completed, I will show their results to the entire world. Not before. Remember this, Dr. Glendon. The werewolf instinctively seeks to kill the thing it loves best. The star of Werewolf of London, Henry Hull, didn't want to be uglied up too much for the picture and didn't like spending a lot of time in makeup, so lead makeup artist Jack Pierce played down his wolfiness. When Hull transforms into the werewolf, he basically just gets cooler hair and sharper teeth. You brought this on me that night in Tibet. Sorry, I can't share this with you. When Pierce did the makeup for George Wagner's The Wolfman in 1941, he had a more willing model in the person of Lon Chaney. But Chaney's Wolfman is still obviously humanoid, just a lot furrier than usual. Ah! 
After the success of The Wolfman and its numerous spin-offs and crossovers, Cheney's version came to be the most popular vision of a werewolf. But before Cheney and Hull, being a werewolf meant being a man who transformed into a wolf. The idea that that transformation took place because of a full moon? That's also mainly a Hollywood invention, although there are a couple of cases where it gets mentioned before. Likewise, while a couple of authors make oblique mentions of silver and even silver bullets in the 19th century, that's mostly a 20th century thing, and seems mostly to descend from Bram Stoker and then the movies. So that's what a werewolf isn't. But as for what one is, hmm, well, that's tougher. I'd go so far as to say that in the whole history of this show, approaching 200 episodes now, I've never come across a more frustratingly vague, idiosyncratic, contradictory, and downright incoherent subject as werewolves. In the first place, there are surprisingly few comprehensive academic studies on the history of werewolves. When it comes to work that traces the origins and evolutions of the idea itself, there's basically one book that does a good job, an obscure piece of writing by Elmer Lurie that's never been put into English, which I have been clawing through via Google Translate. Part of what makes tracking the werewolf so difficult is a general paucity of records. Many of the existent documents on werewolves we do have seem to have been written in response to events, ideas, and persons that we know nothing about. Maybe because the original documents describing those were lost or destroyed. Or maybe because those things weren't attested to in writing in the first place. Perhaps because even talking about werewolves was sometimes the kind of thing that could get you in trouble. Perhaps because a lot of these werewolf stories and ideas had disparate pagan origins in a time where reading and writing were all but the exclusive purview of Catholic scholars. That there was no single origin for the idea of werewolves seems roughly assured. Belief in or myths of animal transformation are nearly ubiquitous among all cultures, and given the prominent position wolves held and hold in the imaginations of any people who live near them, it's logical to assume that some version of the werewolf must have popped up repeatedly all across the occupied world. A number of Talmudic and biblical scholars have argued that the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of 2 Kings, which we talked about briefly earlier this year in Burning Men, is about God inflicting the king with werewolfism, or at least lycanthropy. Similarly vague, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the goddess of love, Ishtar, tries to seduce Gilgamesh, and he refuses, giving a long list of reasons which include this evocative half-story. You loved the shepherd, the master herder, who was always bringing you bread baked in the coals, and who slaughtered a young goat for you every day. Still you struck him, you turned him into a wolf, so now his own shepherds chase him, and his dogs snap at his shins. I don't think you should always judge someone by their past relationships, but that does seem like a pretty big red flag. The oldest clear-cut report of werewolves belongs to Herodotus, who said in his 430 BC book Histories that a Baltic tribe he calls the Nuri were all transformed into wolves for several days each year. A potentially older story is that of Lycaon, king of Arcadia, who tried to test whether Zeus was really omnipotent by secretly serving him his son's entrails for dinner. 
Zeus did realize what he was eating and, angered, performed a real Zeusian feat of magic. He restored the dead, cooked, and partially eaten son, Nyctimus, back to life, killed Lycaon's other 49 offspring, and transformed the king himself into a wolf. Every detail of the Lycaon myth is up for grabs, depending on who's telling it. And as far as I know, the earliest existent version, which includes the wolf transformation, belongs to Lycophron, who has Zeus transforming everyone at the table who ate of Nyctimus into wolves. Lycophron was the librarian in charge of the comedy section of the Library of Alexandria, and his version of the story must date to somewhere around 250 BC. Later writers, particularly Ovid, also go with the Zeus turned Lycaon into a wolf telling, but other early versions have Zeus blasting him and or his family with lightning bolts, which isn't nearly as interesting, but is very much in keeping with Zeus's, uh, Zeusdom. The other best competitor for oldest werewolf mention also comes from Arcadia and from Plato's Republic. When Socrates is asked how a protector, or good king, transforms into a tyrant, he answers, Clearly, when he does what the man is said to do in the tale of the Arcadian temple of Lycaon Zeus. The tale is that he who has tasted the entrails of a single human victim minced up with the entrails of other victims is destined to become a wolf. Plato, in the character of Socrates, seems to be alluding not to the story we've just told, but to a different story of Demarcus, a famous Olympic boxing champion. While Plato's take on Demarcus is vague and metaphorical, later authors get more specific. Pliny, in his Historia Naturae, says that Demarcus attended the festival of Lycian Zeus in Arcadia, where a young boy was sacrificed to Zeus, and Demarcus was nominated to take a taste of the boy's ground-up entrails, at which point he was transformed by Zeus into a wolf. The terms of the curse, according to Pliny, were that if Demarcus could abstain from eating any human meat for ten years, he could return to his natural form. Writing a bit later, the Greek geographer Pausanias mostly agrees with Pliny's telling, except that he says the duration of the curse is nine, not ten years. Pausanias was also not convinced that this actually happened to Demarcus, because when he went to visit the boxer's inscription at Olympia, it didn't mention anything about him turning into a wolf. Which, he's right, does seem like the kind of thing you'd mention if you were inscribing something about a guy into stone. But Pausanias suggests that even if this didn't happen to Demarcus, it was a known sequence of events that played out regularly at the festival. That's not what Pliny thought. The transformation of Demarcus was a fluke, a one-time thing. If you were looking for regularly recurring werewolves, you had to go to a different part of Arcadia, Pliny thought, where the Anthus clan meets once a year to choose one of its members at random who must then travel down to a nearby marsh, strip naked, hang his clothes from an oak tree, and swim across. When the chosen man reached the other side of the marsh, he would be transformed into a wolf, and have to go live with a pack of his new kin. If he could restrain himself from eating any people for nine years, he'd be free to grab his clothes from the oak tree and come back to human life. St. Augustine disagreed and agreed with both of them. Yes, it did happen to Demarcus, but it also did happen all the time, not in an Arcadian marsh, but at the festival, and it always took ten years to break the curse. 
Of the four sources, only Plato discusses this phenomenon without a hint of skepticism. Pausanias seems to think the whole thing is unlikely. Pliny, as usual, doesn't seem all that concerned with whether it's true or not, and Augustine, very importantly, refuses to render a verdict. Maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't. If Plato and Pliny didn't know, how could he possibly say for sure? Augustine's waffling is especially important because eventually the existence of werewolves is going to become a pressing matter of Christian theology and a subject of intense, wending legal controversy, which, who knows, might have been settled a thousand years earlier if the church father had taken a side. And thousands of lives might have been saved. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The European Dark Ages were a dark time for werewolves. But not in a scary way, more in the there really aren't many surviving documents from this period of time leaving historians in the dark as to what was going on during it way. Because most of the writers of the time were clergy, lawyers, and government officials, werewolves are usually written about as things that the laity or proletariat believe in, with the moral usually being that they should absolutely stop it. But there are exceptions, and what is striking about them is how rare it is in the Dark Age werewolf literature for authors to treat them as evil. The Irish pilgrim and hermit St. Ronan of Lochranan was persecuted for transforming into a wolf and fled Ireland for Brittany in the 6th century. Bishop Lutprand of Cremona was said to have a similar ability in the 10th century. In the 9th century, the Welsh monk Ninius wrote of an Irish tribe of werewolves that were something like warrior kings, not particularly evil at all. 
Gervais of Tilbury, a cleric and lawyer in the court of King Henry II, backed up that account. In the 12th century, Gerald of Wales, the newly installed Archdeacon of Brecknock, published Topographia Hibernica, a book we've previously talked about back in our very first episode because it's in the Topographia that Gerald forwards the wonderfully delirious theory that geese are barnacles, not birds. But elsewhere in the Topographia, Gerald tells the story of an unnamed priest who was traveling between Ulster and Meath when he was approached by a wolf. But the wolf didn't attack the priest. Instead, it began speaking, in a way that Gerald describes as very Catholic. The wolf was a godly wolf, in actuality a man who had been cursed to wander Ireland in the form of a wolf for seven years. If he could keep his faith and not be killed, he could return to his old life, and some other poor sap would be transformed in his place. The wolf was not alone, though. His wife had been likewise transformed and was very sick, which is why, in spite of the dangers, he had chosen to approach the priest. She needed the priest to come and bless her. After a bit of waffling and the wolf saying more Catholic stuff, the priest agreed to visit the wolf wife and prayed over her as she thanked God for delivering him. But when she asked for Holy Communion, the priest lied and said that he didn't have the host, the wafers, to provide it. The husband wolf called his bluff, saying that he saw the priest had a necklace with communion wafers tucked inside it. And the priest fessed up. All right, yes, he had the equipment. He just wasn't sure he should deliver communion to her because... What was she? A woman or a wolf? Did she have a soul to save? At which point, the male wolf angrily stormed over to his wife, clawed at her, pulling down her skin and exposing a frail old woman within it. So the priest delivered the rite, and the she-wolf passed on in a state of grace. In discussing this story, Gerald returns to Augustine and the question of whether it was possible for a thing to be transformed into something else, particularly a human thing. This was the main sticking point that would dog werewolf debates for the next several hundred years. The official answer was no. In the late 700s, Charlemagne managed to unify most of Western and Central Europe, and with his victories, the Christian church achieved its fastest, largest spread since Constantine, which the Catholic church thought was great, except that a lot of the newly converted Christians in the north held some beliefs that didn't exactly gel with the new regime. So around 907, a little decree started circulating, now known as the Canon Episcopi, which spelled out some of those pagan beliefs and explained why they were not to be engaged with as Christians. Mostly, the Canon Episcopi was concerned with magic, which the Francians and other new subjects of Rome were practicing. All that stuff was heresy, said the canon, especially the weird thing where women were said to leave their houses at night and fly through the sky at the beck and call of Diana, Roman goddess of the hunt. The figure calling to the Francian maids was not, in fact, Diana, the church said, but Satan tempting them into lives of sin. So knock it off. 
The Canada Piscopi is usually thought of as the first embers of the soon-to-be-roaring fires of witchcraft hysteria that burned across Europe and the Americas, often literally, for centuries to come. But it also played an important part in the related hysteria around werewolves. For starters, when these soon-to-be-called witches made their eerie night flights, they didn't fly themselves, but flew upon other things. Eventually, the most common object for flying would become the broomstick. But in the beginning, witches rode flying animals. Mostly, wolves. At the same time, the canon also officially prescribed the limits of the devil's power. This was a sentiment explored by Augustine and various other Christian philosophers and apologists over the last 600 years, but the canon Episcopi made it official. Neither wicked men nor Satan himself could change the nature or shape of reality, meaning that witches could not fly nor be changed into animals like wolves. What Satan could do was trick people into thinking that they were flying or turned into animals by diluting their visions or infecting their dreams. This had really important ramifications, not just for werewolves, not even just for witches, but for Europe. Because let's say you were a witch and you went for a night flight with Diana. According to the canon, not only was that not Diana, but you weren't really there. The devil was tricking you in your dreams into believing you were flying. And that was a sign of heresy, that you were giving in to the infernal one. But let's say that someone saw you flying, witnessed this heretical sin of yours. Well, that was a sign of sin too, because Satan was fooling the witness as well. For the next 500 years, the official position of the church was that witches, black magic, and by extension, werewolves did not exist. And if you thought they did, then you were in trouble the same as anyone you might accuse. So naturally, very few accusations of this sort were made, and even fewer of them recorded. There was another limiting factor on magic, though. When someone was thought to be a witch in league with Satan, and an accusation was made in spite of the theological headwinds, and even when some witchy crime could be proved, that crime had to be spiritual. Since the effects of witchcraft were imaginary, for lack of a better word, taking place mostly in dreams, the official legal offense was heresy, which was the purview of the church. The punishments the ecclesiastical court could mete out were mild. The rarely convicted witches were ordered to fast, or do penance, or at worst, be excommunicated. Most of the time, they were offered a path to forgiveness, which the medieval church believed to be an almost necessary option. In the late 14th century, this became increasingly seen as insufficient. After all, witches, if there were witches, were capable of the worst crimes imaginable. They were agents of the devil on earth. And good Christian folks were supposed to answer that by sending them to bed without dinner? Kind of an underreaction, right? But unless there were some real-world crime involved, some theft or injury or killing or such, the secular courts had no authority in the matter. And so long as magic officially didn't exist, you couldn't very well convict someone of murdering babies or blighting crops or savaging livestock or poisoning households unless they actually physically did those things. Which might sound alright to you and your high-minded concept of justice, 
But to the panicky 15th century Catholics of the Alps, this prudence became unacceptable. It was then and there that people started dismissing the church's dismissal, and then and there that witches began infecting the minds of Europe. While the canon was still, in theory, the law of the land, minds were changing. Intellectuals were rediscovering the writings of antiquity, Pliny, Aristotle, Ovid, Homer. On the one hand, this was bringing a level of advancement to Christian thought, science, and philosophy, which had long languished behind the Muslim world. But with that advancement came all sorts of wild pagan ideas of monsters and myths, gods and ghouls, of witches and werewolves. Back when the canon Episcopi was laid down, the people being chastised and warned off of their superstitious ideas were the rabble, the lower class barbarians being folded messily into the church. Now, at the end of the medieval period, the pagan call was coming from inside the house. So when it was finally time to bring the weirdos, still living their semi-superstitious lives in the hinterlands of the Alps and points even further from Rome to heel, the people put in charge of doing so were no longer immune to the strange ideas they encountered, no longer able to write them off as simply backwards nonsense. They were still backwards, of course, but they weren't nonsense. They were evil. There were kinks to be worked out, particularly squaring the circle of witchcraft being an illusion, and how to bring the witches into the secular courts so that they could be properly and appropriately burned alive. There were a lot of solutions. The legal justification was simple. Signing a pact with Satan was a religious matter, not subject to secular punishment. But if... In the process of entering that pact, you, say, had sex with Satan. Well, that was sodomy, and you could be tried in the secular court and sentenced to death for sodomy. It's like Al Capone, but replace tax fraud with devil fucking. As for how to get around the canon Episcopi, uh, that was tougher, and it dovetails nicely back into werewolves, actually. The first few times that wolves were linked to witches, it was around the city of Basel. And the witches weren't accused of transforming into the beasts, but instead of fetching them on their neighbors, calling wolves to eat livestock or murder enemies. That, as it happens, wasn't impossible by canon rules. You also had some wolf riders, either flying through the night sky or paralyzing farmers with the evil eye, and a couple of sorcery cases where people confessed to turning into wolves. All of this was still considered impossible, so those elements were simply neglected when rendering a verdict. Or the canon was ignored. It really depended upon the specific details, the time, the place, the prosecutor, and especially the judge. In December of 1521, a wolf attacked a man on the road near Poligny, northwest of Geneva. The man managed to wound the animal and drive it away. He followed its trail of blood, which led him to the home of Michel Verdun, whom he found in the bathtub, being tended to by his wife for a wound identical to the one he had just given the wolf. This is the oldest case known, at least, of full-fledged werewolfery in the legal records of Europe. Under torture, Michel Verdun confessed to making a pact with the devil, who gifted him an ointment that would turn him into a wolf at will. He named two other men, 
Pierre Burgot and Philibert Montand, who had likewise earned this gift. Burgot and Verdun admitted to a whopping share of unthinkable crimes, the killing of livestock, bestiality, and a whole lot of murder, particularly murder of children. Rather than join them, Montant tried to run, but he was soon caught and forced to confess. We don't actually know how the courts deliberated on this matter, but we can make a guess. The three had confessed to some truly heinous acts and needed to be punished accordingly. But they said their sins had all been performed in wolf form, which was officially impossible. If these men believed they transformed into wolves, then they were guilty of heresy because their weak-minded selves had been seduced by Satan in dreams to that belief. But then how to account for the surviving man who not only saw the wolf, but felt it and heard it and discovered Michel Verdun at the end of its trail? Well, how about this? We're just spitballing here. Maybe. When the devil tricks someone into thinking they're a werewolf and gives them dreams of tearing across the country, seeding mayhem, the devil himself enacts the very same acts that the dreamer dreams. And if Michel Verdun weren't asleep at the time, if his wife testified that he wasn't at their house, no problem. If the devil could make him sleep and dream of lupine murder while at the same time committing the crimes of the dreamer, then certainly he could also render Verdun invisible for the course of things and wound him in the proper place, all to strengthen the illusion of transformation. Crucially, this didn't let Verdun off the hook, nor Montat or Burgot, because they signed the pact and believed themselves to be the actors, they were still responsible for the crimes, even if, technically, they were not the ones who had committed them. Technically. So all three were put to death. Were any of them actually guilty of... anything? Had the crimes they were convicted of even actually occurred? Did any of these men believe they were werewolves, or were their forced confessions entirely false? Did anyone else truly believe they were werewolves, or was this a sort of term of art, a poetic expression of their barbarism? Did any of this even really happen? It's impossible to say. What seems pretty obvious, however, is that while this is the first record of a straight-up werewolf trial, it almost certainly wasn't the first one conducted. The description of the arrests, the trial, the confessions, they're all too perfectly formed, so seemingly set, like a paint by numbers. The whole process is codified, which seems to indicate that there's been some rock polishing behind the scenes, some werewolf trial, trial and error, which went unreported or else got lost. This is even stranger, though, because while the Verdun incident shows this striking level of sophistication, in other places the idea is still inchoate, and for decades to come, a lot of the most notable werewolf trials read as ad hoc. Twenty years later, in Padua, a man attacked a bunch of guys on the road, out of the blue, who eventually restrained him and dragged him to the Inquisition. He said that he was a werewolf, but the Inquisitor was skeptical. If he was a werewolf, where was the skin he wore to transform? The man said he didn't need one, that he was a different kind of werewolf, who wore his fur beneath his skin. To test this, the Inquisitor hacked away at his arms and legs to see if he could find the subcutaneous fur. Since he could not, the man was deemed innocent of werewolfery, and then bled to death moments after the verdict was spoken. 
When Pierre Colfin was accused of werewolfery in 1573, he defeated the system simply by refusing to confess. The authorities were thrown for a curve by this and ended up letting him go, with a warning that they might ask him to reappear in court down the line, though it seems they didn't. There was also disclarity on how to distinguish true werewolves from lycanthropes and whether the distinction should matter. What was so different, after all, between the devil casting an illusion or a melancholic individual whose mind was deluded into believing the exact same thing? Maybe they were identical conditions, or maybe the devil produced the delusion to confuse mankind about his true actions. People certainly were confused. In most places, it was against the law to question the church and against the law to question the courts. Where werewolves were concerned, this created a weird kind of catch-22. It was illegal to believe in the beasts, even at the same time that it was illegal to question the courts who were condemning them. The position was incoherent and untenable, so you might expect that the paradox would dissolve or unravel through the sheer weight of its own ridiculousness. But before the matter could come to some natural resolution, the product of further academic debate and argument, something happened. Werewolves began appearing in greater and greater numbers, and what they were accused of doing was so horrifying that the public reaction basically forced the church to renege on its own position and begin actively hunting down the satanic animals who were hunting them. I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Before we go any further, it would behoove us to ask what might seem like a silly question. Why wolves? Why weren't people transforming instead into, I don't know, 
cats or pigs or crows or whatever? And the answer is that they were. Never in the same numbers as werewolves, but there were werecats and werecrows, and even at least one case of a werepig that rooted around in gardens destroying turnip crops in service of the Dark Lord. But mainly, and most nefariously, there were werewolves. So why? The most obvious and probably most critical reason is that wolves are dangerous. They're apex predators, and since time immemorial, people have found them threatening. Wolf attacks on people and even on livestock are pretty rare, but throughout human history, people have feared them. In other parts of the world, we see similar myths of humans transforming into dangerous native animals. Jaguars among the Mesoamerican Olmecs, hyenas in the Levant, leopards in Sub-Saharan Africa. If you were dreaming of a nightmare animal in Europe, the wolf was a natural subject. But it goes deeper than that. In the Christian ethos, wolves held a special place. Jesus, his disciples, and adherents are frequently described as shepherds, sheep, and lambs, in contrast to wolves who are ever trying to deceive, frighten, and devour them. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, Jesus says in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Matthew also writes, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Acts 20.29 20, reads, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The wolf was seen in the late medieval period as evil even in his simple mannerisms. Thomas Aquinas classified wolves along with bears and foxes as dark creatures since they refused human servitude and harmed human enterprise. And a common theme of sermons of the time contrasted the nature of wolves with sheep, as in the writings of the Augustinian monk Abraham a Sancta Clara, who wrote, A sheep bows down to the ground and bleats but a wolf holds up its head to the sky above it and howls. No less does a blasphemer raise his head in anger and wrath against heaven, against his creator, against his redeemer. Even more directly, people knew that wolves sometimes ate their young, particularly during harsh winters. And this somewhat complicates the records of werewolves because sometimes, especially in the early days, the term seems to be used as a metaphor for child killers. It was several cases of child-killing werewolves in the late 16th century that caused the phenomenon to grow and spread to epidemic levels. In the 1570s, children started going missing in Dole, then the capital of Burgundy. The body of a young girl was found in a vineyard partially devoured. A week later, another girl was found with her throat gouged out and her body ripped in two at the abdomen. Witnesses said they saw a wolf feasting upon her remains. Then a 10-year-old boy was found dead in the same vineyard as the first victim, with his legs missing. Whether or not werewolves existed in the hallowed halls of Catholic apologetics, the Burgundian authorities weren't taking any chances. They issued an edict encouraging people to apprehend the werewolf that was preying upon their children, dead or alive. A week later, 
In the dim twilight, some local workers heard the screams of a boy calling for help and sprinted for the forest, where they found what some of them said they initially thought was a wolf, but soon recognized as Gilles Garnier. Gilles Garnier was always looked upon with suspicion, which should probably give us some doubts about his guilt right off the bat. He was regarded by the people of Dole as a foreigner, even though he was born in Lyon, just a scant few miles away. And he was thought of as a hermit, since for many years he lived alone in the woods north of town. But by 1572, he was married and had a child. Unfortunately, this didn't exactly improve his position. He was used to feeding himself somewhat independently, but with two more mouths to worry about and a severe famine, he was getting desperate. After he was fingered by the locals, Gilles was soon apprehended and made an outlandish confession. Whether this was freely given or tortured out of him is unclear, though I know what I think. He said that, faced with hunger, a shadowy figure appeared to him in the woods and offered him a way to feed his family, an ointment that he could rub on his body to transform into a wolf. He said that he had eaten from his victims raw and cut away strips of flesh which he brought home to cook for his wife and child. With his confession and more than 50 witnesses, he was convicted of being a witch and a man-wolf and burnt at the stake on January 18, 1574. Fifteen years later, an even more horrendous story would spread across the continent. This time, the events were centered in Bedburg, Cologne, which, in the 1580s, was facing a lot of different threats than Burgundy. There were outbreaks of plague and cattle blight, and, most importantly, Protestantism. To Catholics, the religious and political movement begun by Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon seemed like further proof of dark forces moving throughout the world. That there were Germans who spurned the Pope, God's living face on earth, for these heretics was a sure sign that devil worship was real. What was the difference, really? For the Protestants, matters were more complicated. Luther didn't have much to say about the growing Catholic belief in witchcraft, but he did find the possibility of black magic real and troubling. However, he specifically and expressly denied that werewolves, or any sort of human transformation, were anything other than superstition. Melanchthon, conversely, was not so sure. In a lecture to his congregants, he quoted a letter from the mathematician Herman Wilkin, who said that a friend of his was convicted and executed as a werewolf in 1585. Melanchthon's son-in-law, the Reformation physician and historian Caspar Pucer, not only believed in the existence of werewolves, but offered a Protestant theory for how they might work, writing that an individual suffering from melancholia might have their humors so disturbed that their alchemical makeup becomes that of a wolf, which then leads them to physically transform and seek the Black Sabbath. These connections were not the only things tying werewolves together with Protestants. The Reformation largely lived, spread, and conquered due to a new invention, the printing press, which allowed the ideas of Luther to travel all around the Western world. And the same was true for werewolves. 
While there had been sporadic, regional reports for the better part of two centuries, it was with the printed word that the phenomenon went global. Thanks to the story of Peter Stump, the Wolf of Bedburg. While there are a lot of near-contemporaneous accounts of the trial of Peter Stump, the official transcripts, if they ever actually existed, are missing. And the stories that survived are somewhat vague and frequently contradictory. In fact, I'd say that there's a decent chance that the whole thing never happened at all, that it was a fiction. If it did, Peter Stump was surely not the culprit's real name. The surname Stump was at best a nickname, a description of his missing left hand. In one of the surviving handbills of the story, Peter is said to have lost the hand to a woodman's axe while in wolf form, and when the people of Bedburg later saw him as a man with the same injury, he was caught. In another version, a patrol of townspeople chased him in wolf form and, after being cornered, witnessed Peter transform right in front of them. All accounts suggest he was a farmer, a widower, a father of two, and very well off. Most also suggest he was a likable and kind sort, with one handbill in particular going out of its way to talk about just how beloved he was. Likewise, all accounts say that he confessed when he was tortured on the rack. He not only took credit for the cattle blight and some other mutilated animals, but also for the murders of 16 people. 14 of them were children, including his own son, whose brain he devoured from within the skull casing. The other two were pregnant women, whose fetuses he ripped with reddened claw from their still trembling wombs and gobbled up on the spot. He also confessed to an incestuous relationship with his daughter and to adultery with a distant cousin. He said he had practiced witchcraft from the time he was approached by Satan at twelve years old. The devil had given him a special girdle, which, when tightened to the left, transformed him. He said he had hidden it beneath a rock in a certain field, though authorities were unable to ever locate it. As lurid as the details of his crimes were the details of his punishment. Peter Stump was tied to a wheel and forced to watch as his mistress and his daughter had their skin flayed and were then strangled. Peter's skin was flayed off too and a red-hot poker run across his body. Then, the executioner took the flat side of an axe and broke his arms and legs before turning it around to decapitate him. His body was then cut from the wheel and burnt, along with his mistress, Catherine, and daughter, Sybil. For good measure, the torture wheel was put upon the end of a long pole and raised at the gates of the city as a warning. An etching of a wolf was drawn upon it, and above that sat Peter's bloody head. If any of this happened at all, it's likely that the confession was invented wholesale to spare Peter the pain of torture. If any of his victims existed, and there's no telling even that, they were as likely to have been killed by Catholic or Protestant militants who were waging war in the area as anything, or perhaps by an actual wolf. But whatever the truth and provenance of the story, it made for a real bestseller spread in various versions around the German-speaking world and quickly being translated into French and English too. In the wake of the tale of Peter Stump, the Wolf of Bedburg, werewolf persecutions went from rare, sporadic, 
idiosyncratic events to a positive deluge. Whole families were executed as werewolves, sometimes hundreds of people in a single region in a year. One particularly wolfish lycanthrope hunter claimed that an entire French county was 100% werewolves, some 30,000 people. Anyone could be a werewolf, and anyone could be killed for being a werewolf. Women and young children were not exceptions. But over the first few decades of the 1600s, a general gender divide began to form. Women were mostly witches, men were mostly werewolves. What further fueled both panics was the incentive to name accomplices. Frequently, confessing to the act was not in itself enough to stop the torture. A witch or a werewolf also had to name names. And so long chains of tortured werewolves would form, not only upping the numbers, but also offering chances for the typical story to try out new mutations, which would craft more leading questions, which ultimately led to a more uniform understanding of werewolf behavior, which only granted the idea more credibility. The Canon Episcopi, which itself had been severely tortured to find ways to allow witches and werewolves to exist, was now burnt on its own pyre. In contrast to the Canon, witch and wolf hunters noted that the Bible contained numerous accounts of transformations, of King Nebuchadnezzar, of Lot's wife being turned to salt, of water becoming wine. Wasn't Holy Communion itself a case of integral human transformation from bread to flesh and blood to wine? For the Catholics, at least. Some rejected the old canon entirely, while others held to it from a flimsy thread. Humans could transform, after all, but only with the permission of God, who might turn a blind eye to the devil's doing in order to test humanity's faith and goodness. To fully deny witchcraft and werewolfery now was to say that thousands, even tens of thousands of confessions were false and that the officials, secular and religious alike, who presided over them were foolish or corrupt, which was the sort of thing a werewolf might say. For a full hundred years, werewolves were persecuted throughout most of Europe, but by the end of the 17th century, the motif was starting to fray. The once unified story of a man being given an ointment or pelt or girdle by Satan and then devolving into a lustful life of violence and depravity started to give way. Lycanthropy, wolf madness, again asserted itself as the best explanation for supposed werewolves, as rationality and science began to come to the fore of academic European life. Compassion, too, served as a factor, as in more and more cases the werewolf was seen as an undeserving victim, the way he'd been viewed in the old Roman and Greek stories. In one particularly telling trial, an old man named Thais of Kaltenbrunn was charged with heresy in 1692 and defended himself by saying he was a member of a secret order of God, whom the good Lord empowered to transform into wolves so that they could do battle with satanic witches, their hated enemies. Thesis's case was remarkably detailed, especially once you know that he had only been asked to court originally as a witness to a robbery. But in the end, the judges laughed off his Wolf of God story. He was sentenced to a flogging for spreading heresy, but while members of the community were concerned he was a werewolf, the judges assured everyone there was no such thing. 
Compared to the thousands of werewolves officially condemned in the 1600s, there appear to be just nine in the 18th century altogether. All of them beggars, all of them in Salzburg, and seven of them were tried and convicted at the same time, 1717. The final one came just three years later, Simon Wind in 1720. There were other stories and legends and the like, of course, not many, but some. As far as the European judicial system was concerned, though, there was nothing more to say about werewolves. Until Manuel Blanco Romasanta confessed to 13 murders near the Spanish village of Reborda Chao in 1853. The life and trials of Manuel Romasanta are disturbing for different reasons than his werewolf predecessors. For one, there is no doubt about his crimes. Most of them, anyway. He didn't confess under torture or threat of excommunication. He just gave in and came clean. Nine women and children killed in the forests and mountains, as well as three shepherds and an old woman whom the authorities had had no clue were his handiwork. As for the nine, he had earned their trust, seduced them even, he had taken their money and their possessions. Then, with the promise of a new life, he had literally led them into the wilderness and killed them, butchered and violated their bodies, and eaten of their flesh. All this was hardly the beginning of what made his life so difficult to hear about. Manuel had been born Manuela. The birth was hard, and the baby so disfigured and deformed that doctors were not even initially sure the infant was human. But it didn't appear to have a penis, so for the first six years of life, Miguel and Maria Blanco Ramosanta raised the child as a girl. Then, suddenly, a doctor examining Manuela found signs of a small penis, and overnight Manuela was renamed Manuel and expected to behave as a boy. He was frail, sickly, and diminutive only ever reaching a height of perhaps 4'11", maybe 4'6", depending on the source. He became a tailor and dressmaker, and was married, briefly, until his wife died due to circumstances unknown a year later. At that point, Manuel gave up work as a tailor to be a traveling salesman. He worked out of Lyon for more than a decade until 1844, when he killed a marshal who had come around looking to collect on a debt. He'd fled his old life, a wanted man, and eventually resettled in Reborda Chao, where the real murder spree had begun. The Blanco sisters, Antonia Land, their sons and daughters, and the 12-year-old Maria Dolores. Yes, he'd done it. He'd killed them all and feasted upon them, too. Not just them, either, but the three shepherds and the old woman, too. But, Romasanta said, it was not his fault. He was powerless to stop in the face of a curse which transformed him into a wolf. He told the court, The first time I transformed was in the mountains of Cuso. I came across two ferocious-looking wolves. I suddenly fell to the ground and began to feel convulsions. I rolled over three times, and a few seconds later, I was a wolf. I was out marauding with the other two for five days until I returned to my own body, the one you see before you today, Your Honor. The other two wolves came with me, who I thought were also wolves, changed into human form. They were from Valencia. One was called Antonio, and the other Don Gennaro. They, too, were cursed. We attacked and ate a number of people, 
because we were hungry. The prosecutor asked Romasanta to prove his defense, turn into a wolf right there before the jury. But Romasanta said he unfortunately could not. The curse, which was cast upon him and his family by a witch, lasted only 13 years and had conveniently expired just weeks ago. If the life and crimes of Romasanta were a grim tragedy, then the trial was a stupefying farce. Without eyewitnesses or physical evidence, the entire case rested upon the confession, which, yes, was given freely, but also, you know, said he turned into a wolf. It was the prosecution's job then to prove not only that he wasn't a werewolf, but that he also wasn't a lycanthrope. He had to be sane, as well as human. So they brought in expert witnesses, in the form of a variety of phrenologists, who investigated the lumps and shape of Romasanta's skull, and told the court, his inclination to vice is voluntary and not forced. The subject is not insane, dim-witted, or monomaniacal, nor were these conditions achieved while incarcerated. On the contrary, he instead turns out to be a pervert, an accomplished criminal capable of anything, cool and collected and without goodness, but acts with free will, freedom, and knowledge. Manuel Romasanta was convicted and sentenced to death. Before that sentence could be delivered, though, a mysterious doctor, known in the record only as Monsieur Philip, reached out to the Queen. He described himself as a Bradian, i.e. a hypnotist, and said he believed Romasanta was delusional and that he wished to examine, treat, and possibly cure him. As a sort of public voir dire, he gave a show wherein he hypnotized several volunteers, one of which he convinced to behave as a wolf. Romasanta's death sentence was thus commuted, although there's no evidence to suggest Monsieur Philip actually ever saw him. Instead, Romasanta died in prison, ten years later, from stomach cancer. The families of each of his victims were paid 1,000 rials restitution. 9,000 in total. Not 13,000. Because in the end, Manuel Blanco Romasanta was only convicted of nine of the 13 killings he confessed to, those of Maria Dolores, the Garcia sisters, Antonia Land, and their children. As for the other four, the three shepherds and the old woman, Romasanta was acquitted. When their remains were found and examined, his involvement had been deemed impossible because they had been killed by a wolf. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. This episode is brought to you in part by patrons who subscribe and make this show possible. Especially John Calcivart, Eric Schroeder, Harry Propst, Laura F., and Brian W. Thanks to all of them and everyone else who donate to sustain the constant. And in exchange, receive early ad-free access to new episodes and monthly bonus stories. Hey, that's a good deal! Go to patreon.com slash the constant if you want in. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to werewolf. 
coffee bar. I've never been, but it looks good. This has been The Constant. Where werewolves were... Where werewolves were concerned, this created a rigid... Where werewolves... Where werewolves... Where werewolves... Where werewolves...